Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, a major security breach at a large health insurance firm could expose tens of millions, a phone phishing scam that anyone would fall for, and then we'll celebrate our 200th episode by reading your TechSnap stories. And then our feedback segment is a storage spectacular, plus a whole bunch of our answers, a rock and roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi, everyone, and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 200 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on February 5th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this year's show goes on. Our live stream, while well, that's powered by the incredible Scale Engine over at ScaleEngine.com. You should go check that out. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week... For 200 weeks is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey, Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hey, Alan. Happy 200th episode birthday to you. The chat room, yes. the, the chat room officially declared it TechSnap's birthday grab today. grabbed my old 100 t-shirt. Oh, nice. Nice. Uh, should we mention our surprise right off the top, or do you want to save we, it for our 200 segment? I imagine segment? we should, yes. Okay. All right. I was, all right. So uh, we were going to – so the cat got out of the bag a little early this week anyway. That so, was my fault. <laughs> Yeah, we were going to make it a big surprise. It's probably still a surprise for the majority of you. But uh, over the next couple of weeks, you're going to notice your local TechSnap program gets a little bit better looking as we integrate the brand new TechSnap 200 logo, which we are premiering on the TechSnap t-shirt, which you can find over at teespring.com slash TechSnap. We have uh, a dark gray shirt. The gray that Teespring uses is really slick. Uh, and, of course, you can get it in white. There's also a ladies' tee and a hoodie. The hoodie's awesome. But the the, yes. what, the shirts I'm always the most happy with, Alan, are the long sleeves that we've been doing on these. They're always really great. Uh-huh. And see, you're a nice, felt, handsome fellow. But for those of us that are a little heavier set, the way that these long sleeve shirts are cut, every, every time you wear it, everybody's like, you've been losing weight. I'll be like, no, it's just it's just my shirt. <laughs> but it's great. It makes you feel good. Uh, so I love the long sleeve shirts. Uh, and the dark gray is the color I'm going to get. But we also have it available in white. And mm-hmm. uh, you can find it over at teespring.com slash techsnap. And uh, we've sold 40 of our goal to 100. If we don't get 100, we won't sell any. There's 19 well, days I'm, left. I'm sure we can beat the record of this old shirt here. Uh, it, I, I'm sure m- many more people would uh, like to have a shirt that doesn't have my face on it. And well, the new one has no swearing, so you can wear it to work. And Go figure, though. The number one request is, can't you put patch your S on the shirt? And Al and I were both, we, we realized after the first run that some people couldn't buy it because they couldn't wear it to I work. I know a lot of people. They're like, or even some people that bought it, it's like, yeah, but I can't wear it anywhere. Because yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so this one we're going to go clean. We oh, you never know in the future. You never know. Well, and the new logo looks so much nicer than my yeah. face. <laughs> the new logo is slick. And you know what's funny is uh, that's a process that we've been working on for weeks and weeks. And, you know, mm-hmm. you, you refine it over time. And what you end up with seems kind of obvious at the end. But to get there, it, it took 30, 40, 50, 60. I mean, a lot. Maybe even more because Angela. Went 99 designs. So there were like 99 different ones yeah, that we yeah. rejected. Well, and Angela did the bulk of them. Like she was, she really did the yeoman's work of like paring it down and paring it down. And then, of course, once we got it down to our final selections, we then had to disseminate it amongst the production crew and we had voting. We, we held voting on it and see which yeah. ones came out. Of t- and then even, even the final one at, went through final revisions and tweaks. Uh, and so the process of creating the logo for the TechSnap show, which we never fully went through when we launched the show. Right. We just kind of used the 
bit of art that came with the the graphic frame set we bought off like the motion graphic website. Yeah, I mean, really, it was like, a, well, this is all it all goes together. It's fine, and we just didn't invest a lot in, in, of energy in it back then. But well, and, we, and specifically, we hadn't thought ahead to like, well, we want a, a vector logo that we'll be able to scale to different sizes yeah. to you know print on a t shirt, right? Or right. you know make a giant banner for Linux Fest Northwest, yeah. or, or anything like that. Yeah. So now we've now two hundred weeks in. It, it, we learn. It takes us a little while, but we learn. And so uh, you can get it the first place. It's not available anywhere else yet at teespring.com slash techsnap, and you'll see it roll out over time as we'll get, our, all, we'll get all our graphics packages updated in our frames. The reason why it takes a little bit of time is because I'm the one that does it, and I just I only have a little bit of time every single week, so I just do bits at a time, and uh, you'll see it trickle out, and uh, you can find it right now. Teespring.com slash TechSnap. We're going to have I've a... Also, I've also heard rumors of, of a black version of the shirt with an inverted logo. Oh, really? Oh, really? Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, we're going to have a whole, like, episode 200 segment uh, coming up towards the end of the news here. Yes. Uh, for all those that actually bothered to write in, yeah. thank you very much. Yeah. We are going to be part of the show. Yep. And that's awesome. Uh, to all you people that didn't bother to write in, stern looks. Yes. Mm. <laughs> I would just go. Though, you know what? Honestly, if we'd gotten too much more, it might have been too much. So yeah. it, it was just the right amount. <laughs> we wouldn't have had room for any news. But. <laughs> but we do have a huge story, one that's kind of been breaking yesterday and today. Uh, in fact, a lot of people that are affected probably don't even know about it yet. Uh, be, yeah. uh, well, it's, but it's millions of people potentially. Exactly. So what happened? Uh, so there was a security breach at the health insurance firm Anthem, uh, which could expose tens of millions of uh, U.S. citizens' uh, information. So uh, Anthem is uh, the leading uh, the uh, U.S.'s second largest health insurer, and they disclosed on Wednesday that uh, hackers had broken into their servers and stolen social security numbers and other personal data from mm. all of their business lines. Uh, in particular, they've bought a lot of other insurance companies over the years, and so they have a lot of different names that they go by. So you might be like, "Oh, well, my insurance company isn't Anthem, but uh, they have their own. They might be owned that- by Anthem, though." Yeah, I uh, have a gotcha. whole list that we'll get to in a couple of minutes okay. That, okay. Uh, of their different identities or business units or whatever they want to call them that target different market segments or oh, geez. and so on. Yeah, so on. wherever they have good synergies across platforms and markets. Something like that. <laughs> uh, Anthem didn't specify how many customer records have been breached, but it did say all of the company's different business units were affected. Uh, and by looking at Anthem's actual website, they claim to have uh, 39 million customers. Jeez, 39 million now. Well, they're supposed yeah. to be the number two provider in the United States. Right. Well, so it's uh, 69 million people served by its affiliated companies, and they have 37 million people enrolled in its family of health plans. Uh, so, yeah, there could be uh, information on a large portion of the entire U.S. population in this. Yeah. Uh, this kind of makes me, uh, reminds me of that story a little while ago about the. Um, South Korean uh, version of social uh, security where they found that because it was based on like your birthday and your sex and a couple of things, it was too predictable and everybody's had been breached. Yeah. If you're looking at uh, the social insurance numbers of a third of all Americans are now leaked, then it's like, well, Whoa, yeah. how do we deal with this? Yeah, because it's names, it's birthday, it's social, it's all that stuff, isn't it? Yeah, we have the, the list of exposed data is name, birthday, your member ID at Anthem, your social security number, oh. your address, your phone number, your email address, and uh, information about where you work, uh, since that's related to your jeez, health insurance. Jeez, jeez. Uh, the company said it is conducting an extensive IT forensic investigation to determine what happened. Uh, I've seen some outside reports uh, listing Mandiant as the company they hired to do that. Uh, so oh. that's, you know, 
a well-known company for doing that kind of thing. Uh, and Mandy and actually though owned by FireEye, right? Uh, I think they did get bought by FireEye. The reason why I ask is because I read a report this morning that said they've hired FireEye to do the investigation. So, right. so uh, yeah, I think it's, it's one the and the same. same. Yeah. Well, FireEye is more a the, broader company, and, and Mandiant is specifically. Uh, I think Mandiant was the one that got hired by the New York Times when yeah, they got right. reached by the the Chinese or whatever. Mandiant is the one that has uh, like the former Blackwater guy that runs it too, right? Isn't that right? I don't think so. Okay. I don't know. One of them does. Can't keep it straight anymore, Alan. All right. Anyways, didn't mean to digress. Yeah. Uh, according to Anthem's statement, uh, the impacted plans and brands uh, include Anthem Blue Cross, Anthem Blue Cross and Blue Shield, Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Georgia, Empire Blue Cross and Blue Shield, Amerigroup, Caremore, UltraCare, HealthLink, and DCare. Uh, the company said all impacted members will receive notice via mail uh, which will advise them of the protections being offered to them by the company and what their next steps should uh, be. Like their free credit monitoring from Experia. Yeah. <laughs> Experian, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and uh, although I don't know how soon they will send those out because they're still investigating trying to figure out who's actually affected. Okay. So they seem to have not come out and said, we don't think anybody's affected yet. Uh, but they're like, we're not sure who's affected yet. And at some point, I think... Um, that uh, um, that they'll have to send the notice out to everyone, even if they are not sure you were affected, just because there's a chance you were, right? Yeah, I it would seems think like you have to take the abundance of caution there, rather than uh, not inform certain people that they were breached uh, and not give them free credit monitoring, and then it turns out they were breached. Well, what 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 makes me what I what I've noticed sometimes with these announcements is. Sometimes they go big with the announcement and say this is possibly how many people are affected. And then sometimes they go really small with the announcements and I and say, you know, we don't really think there's been much breach. We'll have more information soon. And well, what I wonder is yes, sometimes we see there's no proof anything has been breached. Yeah, right. Uh, which means well there's no proof everything hasn't been breached yeah, either. Right. Uh, you know, so you always assume by you start by assuming everything is is worst the worst case and then prove that it's not rather than uh, you know, starting out by assuming that everything's going to be okay. Yeah. And so I wonder, though, if maybe they're sort of preparing people a little bit for the really bad news. Like they're starting big yes, to kind of set the, the expectation, think, maybe? Well, their, their, their specific line is, we don't know yet. Right. Uh, which is a fairly reasonable thing to say. So it's really the uh, press is injecting than the millions numbers. That's the press well, yeah, that's kind it, of... The chess is, is, is just saying... They claim to have this many customers. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and if they claim they have this many customers, and that every one of their brands was affected, ergo worst case scenario. Right. Okay. My follow you. Is yeah, because it is like so they've served sixty nine million different people, but they currently only have thirty seven million enrolled. So, but you know, your data is probably still in their database if you've ever been with them. So it's hard to say. Yeah. Boy. Uh so Anthem said once the attack was discovered, the company immediately made efforts to close the sec- uh, security vulnerability. So that means it seems they might know what it actually was, and we'd love to hear more details about that. Uh, and uh, they contacted the FBI and began fully cooperating with their investigation on it as well. Oh, I'm sure. Uh, they claim it was a highly sophisticated attack. Mm-hmm. We would have to find out what the vulnerability was in order to know uh, that for sure. You notice how they always claim it's a highly sophisticated yes. attack these days? And, and in general, you know... What one person considers highly sophisticated could seem highly sophisticated to them. <laughs> Ouch! Yeah, it's true. Right? You know, <laughs> if, if if you're not in the field, then you know anything's highly sophisticated. 
Right. Yeah, running Nmap might seem sophisticated to somebody, right? Whereas to us, right. we're like, yeah, they did a board scan. Big deal. Right. Well, that's <clears> not <throat> what's going to have compromised. But yeah. No, but my point is like there is huge gaps in perception. And I, that's I'm, – Exactly. It, yeah. and, and vague terms like highly sophisticated don't really – Mean anything. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there's not that much detail on it yet, uh, but I'm sure we'll be following this story for a couple of weeks. And it has some extra links. Uh, Threat Post has some extra coverage. And uh, I don't know. There's a link, link Chris gave me and I added it here as well. Okay. Although it was asking me to answer a survey yeah, and isn't ads that, isn't before that I could read the story. Yeah, that, that, that does it after you visit it once or something. I don't know why it happened. Yeah. I know. Maybe you can just scratch it. It's from the San Francisco Chronicle or something. Yeah. Uh, ah, okay. Yeah, I uh, I found this whole thing to be. I started watching it this morning for Tech Talk to see, and, I, and as soon as I saw, it, I was like, "Oh, this is going to be much bigger." And I said, "I'm just going to kind of save this for TechSnap because this is this is much bigger than just a headline type story." And uh, watching this, what I realized was is this is developing so fast that there, if it is millions of people, it's going to take a very long time to get a good percentage of those people in the loop. Like it's just uh, the scale of that. How, yes, do, how do you notify it, something? But, at, you know, that it's scale? same with the the target breach. I think you're going to see the bad guys just don't have the capability to exploit that much data at once. Right. You know, I guess but, that almost but, buys but you time. Breach, they stole this giant swath of credit cards, and they ended up using a very small fraction of them. Yeah. Partly because you know the banks canceled them all, and it's a little easier to do that than it is to do social security numbers. Hmm. All right, Mr. Judy, any other thoughts on that story? Uh, no, that's about it for that one. All right, well, then I'll tell you about something special, Digital Oceans. One of the reasons the TechSnap program has been able to be around for 200 weeks is our support from our sponsors like Digital mm-hmm. Ocean. And we've got a promo code that you can use. That completes the circle of support. The promo code is SNAPOcean over at Digital Ocean. It'll give you a $10 credit. Now, why would you want a $10 credit? When you use SnapOcean, oh, I'll tell you why. Because DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own cloud server. You're going to get root access to this. You'll have access to the console. You can watch the thing boot through an HTML5 console. And you can get started in less than 55 seconds. You can get a server spun up in less than 55 seconds. And the server's good to go. It's going to have 512 megabytes of RAM in that sucker, 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer for only $5 per month. And now remember, SnapOcean's going to give you a $10 credit. You can do math. That means you're going to be able to use that rig two months absolutely free. And DigitalOcean has data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and London. So you're going to get geodiversity. But really, it's all about their awesome control panel. Yes. Well, and they also have that um, private networking that doesn't count against your bandwidth. So if yeah, you do have a server sweet. in New York and one in London, that's you sweet. can back them up to each other without paying for the bandwidth of the backup. I would also, I would also mention that, that uh, one of the things that I have found to be extremely productive is once I get a really great rig set up, I take a snapshot, and I don't even have to keep it running, so it's not like something I'm paying for all the time. But next time I go to launch a machine that's similar to that, I just restore it from that snapshot. And I, I can get, I, so I can get up and go in less, less than even their 55-second time. I mean, like, it's crazy fast. Yeah, and I it's all for that on great year. someone launched one in 29 seconds. Yeah, the day. yeah, I know, it's crazy. You love it. It's, it's DigitalOcean's got the best interface. Plus, they got an API on top of it, so you can push that functionality out even further or take advantage of some of the great apps they've got over there. Go check it out. Use the promo code SNAPOcean. Go over to DigitalOcean.com. Oh, oh, oh. You probably now know about their uh, free BSD support. Check out their tutorial section. They've got some of the best tutorials out there, and they're adding free BSD tutorials too. And yep. it really is some good stuff. So once you get your DigitalOcean droplet spun up, they have a lot of one-click installs for a lot of really seriously cool stuff. Seriously cool one-click installs like Docker, GitLab, Ruby on Rails. Just push it out there. It's done. It's it's yours. 
but then anything on top of that, they've got tutorials that fill in all the gaps. It's really great. And it's a good way to learn, too. You can play with these operating systems for two months for absolutely free up in the cloud. Great speeds. A terabyte transfer. Super slick. DigitalOcean.com. Use the promo code SNAPOcean, one word, lowercase, when you check out. And thanks to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. As we hit episode 200, we're extra, ultra, super duper appreciative of our sponsors mm-hmm. and our audience support. 200 is awesome. Okay, so uh, hotels have been in the news a lot when it comes to cybersecurity. You've heard about like the Wi-Fi jamming and stuff. Uh, I just toured a hotel too, which was really cool. I got to see behind the scenes, got to see the, mm-hmm. the wiring closet and all that kind of stuff. I uh, didn't really think about like hacking the phones though when I was going through the phone closet, but I guess... What is this? Is this like a thing that's happening in hotels now? Phone hacks? Uh, yeah, in particular. Uh, so what was uh, happening was they um, somebody broke into the the phone system, yeah. possibly over SIP. I'm not sure exactly what their phone system setup was like, uh, but they hijacked the hotel's phone number. Oh. And so when you oh. called the hotel, instead of getting correct, connected to the front desk to ask your question or whatever, uh, it was automated voice prompts pretending to be your bank. Uh, and then what they did was uh, send out text messages to like every phone number in a certain area code or whatever uh, to ask those people, uh, hey, we're your bank. Uh, your debit card has been frozen for suspicious activity. Please call this number to sort it out. And uh, people called the number and uh, they're calling you know the local yeah, holiday I, in, but it was actually uh, being I, directed to um, fall for that. A, a specialized voice prompt. Uh, that would say, hey, enter the last four digits of your social security number to authenticate and then enter your credit card number and expiry date. Yeah. And I, then they would steal your credit card number. I would I would totally uh, fall for that. Uh, you know, I said I wasn't going to play it, but here, I'll just so people get a just so people get a little a little sample of it. I'll play just like a, a quick moment. So they can, it sounds legit. Thank you for calling Key Bank. A text message has been sent to inform that your debit card has been limited due to a security issue. Sounds legit. To reactivate, please press 1 now. To identify your account, please enter the last four digits of your social security number. Last four digits of your social security number entered are 1111666. Press 1 if that is correct. So you get the idea, right? Uh, that sound, I, I honestly would, if that happened to me, I mean, because I have enough problems with my debit card that I'd be like, oh, this again? I would fall for it. Yeah, although uh, a couple of things. My bank usually has a real voice recording. Yeah. Because my bank has a lot of money and they can pay somebody <laughs> to have talk somebody. to a microphone <laughs> instead of using a. You know, because they want the name of their bank to sound clear. Yeah. Now, when you're the uh, bad guys, you don't. You, if you right. mumble the name of the bank, that's actually helpful because it means you can catch people where they don't have an account at that bank and would fall for it anyway, kind mm-hmm. of thing. Uh, that was always the reason that uh, I laughed at uh, bank phishing scams I would get uh, because I don't have a I don't use a U.S. bank. I use a right, Canadian right, bank. Right, of course. So it's like, oh, Bank of America, Chase. It's like none of those affect me. Uh, although technically in Canada it might be easier because there's only like five major banks. Mm. Uh, but anyway. Um, and so they would uh, record your responses and send them off over the internet or whatever. And then they would have your stolen credit card number. Uh, it was interesting that they were asking for just certain digits of a social security yeah. number. I don't know if they were just like brute forcing the other ones or using them to match up to existing stolen data. Maybe trying so to it sound was legit. Just enough to trick you into yeah. you know. It's like it didn't ask for your credit card number right away. It only asked for some information with 
when you're only doing part of it, it's it's not that big of a yeah. You know, it, it's Lulls less of a you thing. into a, sen- a self of maybe a false sense of security. Exactly. Uh, sorry. Uh, uh, from the Krebs article here. Uh, a recent phishing campaign targeting customers of several major U.S. banks has powered by text message directing recipients to call the hacked phone lines at uh, Holiday Inn locations in the South. Uh, such attacks are not new, but this one is uh, a timely reminder that fishers increasingly are using lures based on blasting out uh, SMS messages as more and more banks start actually using text messages to communicate with their customers about account activity. For example, I have it set up so that every time my business card is used, uh, it sends a text message to my phone. Uh, in particular, uh, something that I've noticed that maybe regular people might not have noticed uh, this kind of minor difference, in the text message my bank sends me with the details, they say, if this looks suspicious, call the number on the back of your card. They don't provide the number via the text message. Right. But I don't think most people know that there's a reason they do it that way. Right? So that a fake message of pretending to be like their message uh, you know, would so you're kind of it, they thought that would get people to not trust a, a phone number sent in a text message, but because people don't know that's why the bank doesn't include the phone number. If they saw it there, they, they wouldn't think otherwise. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, I can see how regular people uh, wouldn't know that the bank purposely doesn't include a phone number. Yeah. Right. Or why when you uh, you know. PayPal and your bank always tell you when you get an email, don't click on a link in the email. Go directly to your to the bank's website right. rather than than trusting an email and so right. on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, so there's that one. Uh, the above mentioned phishing attacks are actually a mis, uh, mix of different scams. The first one is called smishing, or you know SMS version of kind of concatenated with the word phishing, uh, uh, which uses uh, phishing lures sent via uh, SMS text messages. And phone phishing or vishing. Uh, I've seen this one happening quite a bit. I got a call Tuesday uh, claiming to be from the Marriott hotel chain. Uh, my phone number had been randomly selected oh. to win a free stay in their, one hey, of their really nice hotels. Congratulations, Alan. And, uh, the previous one was like uh, pretending to be the airline. Wow, uh, you're lucky. And then uh, the worst one was another one where it was like a cruise line. And so you answer the phone and immediately just get the foghorn blast in your ear. Oh, like, no. Meh. No, no. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God. It's off and that is the worst. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the, the cruise line one was, you know, not so much a scam. as just trying to get you to uh, buy into their crap or whatever. Whereas the ones with actually pretending to be Marriott are obviously fishing. Uh, and so they're trying to get as much information out of you. You know, they're like, oh, we're the hotel. We'll give you the for free. But we need a credit card to hold the reservation or whatever, right? And then they steal your credit card. Yeah. Uh, and Or you also just get ones where it's, uh, you know, they could use a recording like that, pretend to be your bank and be like, hey, we're your bank. Something up with your debit card. Could you call us back at this number? Right? And then you call the number and it's, uh, you know. It's fake. Fake. Uh, well, or, you know, um, the idea behind, rather than setting up their own phone number uh, where they could direct all these fake calls, because that means that you know they have to pay the bill for that, and it means that there's some paperwork somewhere where it shows where the money came from. Whereas when you hack uh, the phone system of the hotel, a you don't pay any of uh, you know fees for the call minutes and whatever, right, and right, right, there's right. no paper trail uh, back to you uh, right. for registering and, and paying for the phone number. Mm. Good point. Yeah. 
so it seems a Holiday Inn's telephone switching system may have been hacked in order to do this uh, and then used to record and exfiltrate the stolen information. Uh, in particular, uh, this was done with a bunch of different Holiday Inns in Texas uh, and a couple other places in the South. So it just the patterns suggest that there might be something a little more systemic about uh, either Holiday Inn's uh, phone system or whatever company the, all those hotels happen to contract their phone system out to. It's not clear whether they, you know, they have their own asterisk server that they do for this or if they're just uh, having to be using the same vendor for something <laughs> or what. Yeah. But there definitely was a pattern involving Holiday Inn and that... Uh, so they're looking at that. Uh, Krebs has uh, been communicating a bit with NumberCop, which is a company that's specifically going after these phone scams. Uh, another thing is it's uh, possible that the hotel actually lost a bunch of business due to this because if a customer called the phone number of the hotel trying to actually get the hotel, they would have got the hmm. fake bank scam thing hmm. and not actually reached the front desk uh, to you know make the reservation or inquire about a room or whatever. Uh, so it's, it's interesting that uh, I wonder if the hotel noticed, why have we got no phone calls today? Right. <laughs> you know? Um, so according to uh, Jan Volsk, uh, number cop's chief executive, uh, these scams typically start on a Saturday afternoon and run through the weekend because the banks are closed then. Uh, and so, you know, there's less chance of the bank catching on what's going on and trying to, you know, put a stop to it and, even the hotel, most of the IT people are probably not around to deal with the hacked phone system on right, a weekend necessarily right. and so on. Uh, they say two separate uh, holiday inns getting hijacked in such a short time suggests that a larger issue at work with their telephone system provider. Uh, so that phone line is probably sitting right next to the credit card machine uh, of the holiday inn, or if not, you know, the credit card machine is using that phone line. Uh, so in a way, this is just another retail terminal and, uh, if they can't secure the phone line, maybe you shouldn't be giving them your credit card either. <laughs> but that's kind of a different point. Yeah, how would you? Yeah. Uh, so um, a front desk clerk who answered uh, the line when Krebs called on Tuesday Hello. said the hotel had received over 100 complaints from people who got a text message prompting them to call the hotel's main number during the time it was hacked. Hmm. Uh, so by Tuesday, uh, Holiday Inn had uh, got control of their phone number again and... Uh, they were still getting calls from people being like, why am I getting this text message with your phone number? Wow. So, yeah, I guess they probably, that would be another way to be like, wait a minute, what do you mean? What are you talking about? I wonder if that, I mean, that might have been how they found exactly. out Exactly. Uh, the first 10 calls, you'd be like, what's going on? And after yeah. that, you're like, something definitely going on here. Yeah. Uh, number Cop says the text message lures uh, were sent using an email to SMS gateway. Uh, so, you know, they just sent email to uh, usually it's your phone number at like txt.yourphoneprovider.com or mm-hmm, whatever. Mm-hmm. So uh, they're not quite standardized, but there's giant lists out there so you can get them. Uh, and so basically you can send an email and it actually just gets sent as an SMS. Uh, but that uh, the company has also seen similar campaigns where they actually use a regular in-network uh, number, like hmm. used to get a prepay SIM card and plug it into a GSM modem and start spamming text messages. Uh, and those are harder to catch because with an uh, emails, at least there's you know uh, some IP addresses and, and a, a trail back to where it came from. It makes it a little easier to block in the future as well. Uh, in addition, uh, he said the fishers will often target AT&T and Verizon users uh, for use in furthering these schemes. Hmm. So you know they, if they do some malware and get malware on your phone, then they can use your phone to start sending these text messages, right? So that obviously botnet of phones. Um, on certain prepaid SIM cards, you're not going to get unlimited texting. They're going to charge you so many cents for every text message or something. So you're going to have to keep 
paying for them or something. Whereas if you can make some malware and, and make a botnet of phones, you can be sending text messages all over the place. Wow, Alan, that is a brave new world. Botnet of phones. <clears throat> uh, Numbercop, uh, CEO, says, it's unfortunate that more financial institutions aren't communicating with their customers via the mobile banking app rather than text messages. Right. Uh, banking apps are among the most frequently downloaded and used apps. So if a user has an app from the bank installed, then if the bank really has something they need to send to the customer, they could use the in-app messaging method, you know, make it show up as a notification from the app or whatever, rather than the text message uh, because it'd be harder to spoof. Because you know, SMS messages, you can spoof the sender and they're not secure in any way. Whereas you know, if the uh, bank app is, is getting the message uh, push notification over SSL, then at least there's some security involved there. Although in the end, you know, you still have the susceptibility to fake bank apps. Uh, but they say, as of yet, they're not aware of any banks that are doing that. Hmm. Yeah, it does seem like something they take advantage of, but I suppose it takes. Uh, they have to be comfortable that enough of their customer base are using them. Yeah. Uh, so lastly, uh, Krebs' advice is: regardless of whether you can communica- uh, communicate with your bank via text message, uh, avoid calling phone numbers or clicking on links that appear to be sent uh, via text messages from your bank or almost anyone, really. Uh, you know, be extremely wary of any incoming calls from anyone calling, claiming to be from your bank mm. or text message or anything. Right. Uh, if you think there is an issue with your account, your best bet is to simply call the number on the back of your credit or debit card. That's always a good tip to remember. And it's something that's kind of obvious, but something maybe we don't think about all the time. And that's like Alan pointed out, there's a reason why they'll, they'll, they'll have you refer to that because it's something you have on the card that you know is good because it's from them. Exactly. Whereas, you know, uh, if your computer is infected, then going to your bank's official website might actually not be going to your bank's official website and uh, lots of other potential things that could uh, get you to have the wrong phone number or something. Hmm. Well, I feel like... And, uh, uh, yeah, I have a link at the bottom here to uh, that recording of uh, right. the phishing call. Chatroom and I agree on one thing, though, Alan. I don't like the name Number Cop. I don't like no. it. Just weird. It's weird. Well, they just keep track of phone scams. So no, that's I can good. Understand phone number from. and they're 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 cops of the. Oh, okay, all right, Alan, it works. I'll take it. All right. Well, uh, how about we just take a moment and tell you about something I do like, mm-hmm. IX Systems, right? Yes. IXSystems.com/slash/techsnap. Go check them out. Also, go check out those rigs powered by those sweet Intel Xeon processors. IX has a whole great range of systems from stuff that we run here at the Jupiter Broadcasting Studios. Stuff you can run in your home or small business all the way up to super high-end, big rig stuff. Uh, I, I, I probably can't even tell you what I know one of them is being used for, but it is. It's literally stuff that is changing the world, and they're computing it all on IX rigs. It's really cool things. And, of course, a huge, huge, huge portion of scale engines infrastructure runs on top of IX rigs. So, Alan, you've, you've worked with IX rigs in production all the time. So, of course, Alan's a big fan. But uh, I know, Alan, it's a topic you love. The ZIL. Yep. And uh, IX Systems has a post up on the What's New area. Why ZIL size matters or doesn't? Did you already read this? Did you already take a look at yes, it? Yes, I, I looked at it the other yeah. day. Uh, <laughs> so in particular, they're talking about uh, using a separate intent log. Right? Uh, ZIL is the word is uh, the acronym is most commonly known as, but um, that's not what it's actually called because technically your, your ZFS pool has a ZIL always. Just normally, it's part of the regular pool on your regular spinning disks. Whereas if you have a S log or separate intent log, it goes on an SSD. And they're, specifically, their point is don't spend giant piles of money on a giant, really fast SSD because your ZIL 
probably never going to be bigger than 8 or 16 gigs at the most. Mm. So you can get away with a really small, fast, high-endurance SSD instead. Oh, and interesting. They talk about how TrueNAS will use a non-volatile RAM as a write cache. Yeah, they use uh, uh, NVMe cards, uh, yeah. which are kind of like an SSD, but they go directly in a PCI Express slot, and oh, they boy. don't have to pretend to be a hard drive. Uh, so they get rid of that whole translation layer and make them super fast. Yeah, then it, yeah, no kidding. Wow, talk about just eliminating the final performance barriers. Yes, that is so uh, cool. they worked uh, closely with Intel to get the drivers for those going. And you know, that, that, I got to say, that's one of the things that I think is the most impressive about iX Systems. I mean, of course, it, they have white glove customer service. They have uh, really, though, really some of the best relationships in the industry. They work directly with the people that provide the parts, and they have great relationships there. And they also have great connections and relationships with the open source community. A lot of the technology that the software that runs on top of their great hardware. It's such a cool arrangement. And as somebody who's been in IT for a really long time, uh, I, I wish I knew about iExistence from the beginning because mm-hmm. uh, it would have saved me so much hassle, especially when I'm saving, e- sending equipment out to remote locations and I know they have their burn-in testing before they ship them. Uh, and, and just right down to the uh, pre-purchase consultations where every single time, every single time I've had one of those calls, I've always been like, oh, I don't really think I need this. And at the end of the call, I'm always like, wow, I am so glad we talked about that. And that's how the entire iX Systems experiences from top to bottom. So go over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. They've got a white paper over there if you need to grease the wheels in your company to switch over. You can download that 11 key traits. You've got a demand from your provider. They're not going to spam you. Just get the white paper. Yep. Go check uh, it out. Also, keep an eye out for upcoming uh, webinar about uh, ZFS. Mm. Uh, really? Yeah, the <laughs> schedule just uh, got toggle around. It was supposed to start in the beginning of March, but it looks like uh, Josh is actually going to be in Canada at that time for something else, and so uh, we're not sure when it'll be, but uh, so blame coming Canada. up shortly on uh, iX Systems will be uh, a fireside chat with two ZFS <clears throat> Okay, Alan. Well, so this is the part where I was going to mention our shirt, but uh, so we're going to take a moment here and celebrate 200 episodes of the TechSnap program by reading a few notes from you. This isn't the feedback. We're still going to do the Q&A feedback in just a moment. And Alan, I'll read the first one. They're all kind of titled about the same, so it doesn't make it super easy. But uh, then you can read the next one, and then I'll read the you know, back and forth. Uh, so Egon writes in, uh, and he says uh, – uh, well, let me make sure I, I write, make sure I have my orders right before I start because they are all literally t- titled the same exact thing. Uh, no, Andrew writes in, and he says, uh, I thought I'd drop a quick line and give my example of what TechSnap does for me each week. Firstly, I enjoy the entertainment during my drive to and from work. TechSnap also helps keep me informed of the events such as Heartbleed, the Sony hack, etc., and the media and the stuff the media does not cover. I have become more aware of information I put online, and I've started to take some steps to help protect myself online. TechSnap inspired me to stop using Calc uh, <laughs> spreadsheet to store my passwords and use KeePass instead. <laughs> Lastly, I've started to build, I'm glad to hear that, I've started to build my own infrastructure at home so far. I've built a home file server based on Open Media Vault, and I'm currently learning how to set up my own VPN to protect my mobile phone on public Wi-Fi. Next, I'm thinking about looking into OwnCloud. Keep it up, and happy episode 200. Thank you, Andrew. Cool. Very nice, sir. All right, Alan, uh, you see the free NAS deployed one there? You want to take that one? Yep. Uh, so the next one's from uh, Ruj. Uh, he says, I want to thank you guys for your valuable input on how to use bind correctly. So I guess he was setting up a DNS server. I think yeah. we talked to him about the split horizon thing where you can uh, send internal IPs if they're coming from your LAN, but send external IPs for otherwise. Uh, he says, this and the whole show of in and of itself uh, made me set up a free NAS box for a nonprofit that he worked for for about a year. 
Uh, and he said uh, they're now using own cloud successfully uh, and no longer have to rely on Dropbox uh, to securely store yeah. the files that they only really need to share inside the company. That's their great. Nonprofit anyway. And so not having them out exposed on the internet was a big advantage <clears throat> for them. No kidding. Uh, also, leading by example, I slowly get them to use Linux on their uh, work environment more and more and, and stop paying for overpriced Macs. This is a first new uh, colleague uh, has a Ubuntu GNOME edition on a Lenovo ZenBook, and he said it works like a charm. And then there's another team that's uh, got two new PCs and uh, they're going with Linux rather than uh, Apple and so on. There you go. He says, slowly but surely, I'll convert them uh, wherever possible. And uh, The money yeah. argument always works for him, huh? Yes. Hmm. And, uh, you know, with uh, Firefox and LibreOffice and so on, it, you know, there's kind of the yeah. stuff they're used to using already anyway. Yeah. Uh, I think that's the biggest thing that's helped me uh, convince people is like, well, you're already running Firefox and LibreOffice and, yeah. and, you know, same apps. Uh, Thunderbird for email. Yeah. So uh, even on Windows, I'm using almost all open source apps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he says, thanks, guys. I've uh, been watching every show since its conception. And uh, Nice. He says uh, he <laughs> liked beer as tasty back in the old days. Hey, oh, I could, I, you know what? We should be drinking beer. Oh, Alan doesn't drink. All right. Egon writes in for episode 200. Now, here we go. He says, thanks, Alan. That's the title. I like this one. Uh, he says, uh, where TechSnap helped me not, is not one specific thing. What helped me is the attitude Alan is able to be successful with his business. In the last years of work in the IT field, I realized that what I truly want to do is be an IT service provider for small and medium-sized companies. I'm impressed and encouraged by the way Alan sticks to his principles and is still successful in his business. Maybe he's even successful just because he is sticking to his principles. Whenever Alan explains things, he almost always follows my existing line of thoughts or what my line of thoughts would be if I knew as much as Alan knows. Uh, hell, Alan even knows how to pronounce the letter Z. So TechSnap encouraged me to follow my dream to become an independent IT service provider, and I do this in a cautious and planned manner for over a year now, and I'm very pleased with the results. Thank you, TechSnap Egon. Yeah, he did mention in the email, uh, although he doesn't agree with all the Linux bashing. <laughs> I try not to do too much Linux bashing. I, I, I let that last one slide and didn't say... Why are you being yeah, you did. I was impressed. all the Linux? I was impressed. All right. You see Douglas Codes there, uh, Alan, one from Douglas Codes. Yes. Uh, so Douglas Codes writes in, in about uh, TechSnap 200 and how it's helped. He says, well, um, well I've only been watching uh, the show regularly since about 180, so 20 hmm. weeks now. Mm-hmm. Uh, the show has helped in a big way. Um, he says, just being able to listen to the in-depth, enthusiastic explanations from Alan uh, and yourself, I guess he was writing this towards Christmas. Probably because uh, I usually read them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, really puts me in the right frame of mind. Uh, when I was an amateur, my uh, background focused more in programming languages and low-level understanding of CPU and memory and so on. Uh, it sounds silly to say, but I don't know how the internet or networking actually worked. Um, the Belkin Router Apocalypse episode was eye-opening, hysterical, and educational. <laughs> uh, knowing how a poor decision in programming uh, design led to a real-world networking and business disaster. Uh, you know, that if you remember that case, they had uh, all their routers relied on pinging right. a specific server at... Uh, yeah, like something like uh, heartbeat.belkin or something really dumb. Yeah, heartbeat.belkin.com, yeah. <laughs> which is even funnier now that we know... Yeah. Lead. yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so they, yeah, basically the router determined if the internet was up or not by whether or not the one server at Belkin was up. And as soon as it was down, everybody's Belkin router pretended the internet was down. Right. Which is so dumb in retrospect. Yeah. Wow. 
Yeah. uh, Now, as a professional developer, it's pretty important to understand what's happening at the network level. Uh, Seeing the computers and services through Alan's eyes is invaluable. Plus, I just love being uh, around intelligent people discussing computers. And I know exactly what he means there. I um, uh, just, that's why I like the BSD conferences so much, is just being in a room full of people that yep. are want to talk about the same stuff I want to talk about. Yeah, it's really fun. It's the same thing like even when you go to like a Star Trek convention and you're talking yeah. about Star Trek stuff. Uh, but yeah. I really noticed that. Like that's one of the best things about like the fests and, and cons is everybody there is really geeky and and everybody there has been looking to talk to somebody about this stuff. So everybody's ready to go. It's and, great. And that's what I really wanted TechSnap to be when we first started it, right? Mm-hmm. It was uh, mm-hmm. just you and I talking shop and, yeah. and having fun. And yeah. It, it kind of took a bit more of a security angle than the system angle but that's where the news kind of took us yeah no kidding and it's interesting to look at the security stuff from the perspective of doing the systems implementations you know that's always an interesting angle you know not a security expert but seeing you know even just the little steps you can take as a not an expert to to uh make yourself uh not the slowest runner from away from the bear yeah yeah exactly yeah yeah Hmm. Uh, it says, uh, almost none of my regular friends uh, know what's going on when I'm talking about this stuff. Uh, I work for uh, an MSP, so that's a Microsoft solution provider, and my coworkers are mostly Windows Active Directory oriented, and I'm the mm-hmm. lone Linux advocate. Uh, the knowledge I have absorbed from TechSnap, uh, TechSnap has uh, proved invaluable. I'm trying to work our team into a better policy of using uh, root login uh, on the Linux servers, uh, particularly since they all use the same password. I've set up SSH keys for myself. I noticed in some of the sudo and pam documentation, there is a way to use Active Directory domains for authentication on Linux. Uh, yeah, I think you can actually put, uh, by creating, I think it's a custom attribute or something in Active Directory, you can have uh, your SSH public key, the part you would put in uh, authorized keys, in your user entry in Active Directory. And then uh, that's how the SSH can authenticate you. And the advantage to that one is it's um, when you have the big known host file for root, uh, you have this giant list of keys, and you're like, whose keys is whose, and which ones are expired and we don't mm-hmm, need anymore, and mm-hmm, so on. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And you know that always became a yes. bit of an issue, and yes. so uh, managing it with uh, LDAP or or Active Directory can uh, be an advantage. But yes, in particular, uh, sharing uh, the root, having root be able to log in on all the machines and having the same password. Is something you see a lot oh, and yeah. it's really, really bad. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Super yeah. common, too. Uh, and it, a lot of times it'll happen because of some script or something, too. It's yeah. or monitoring well, system. Even, even just, um, I remember when uh, I set up the, uh, the server at uh, the college I went to um, for the, the, they have a, a server they called CS Unix, and it's where all the students get access, get a shell account mm. in order to do their. They like have like a pro programming class where they need to be able to have a Unix environment, and I think there's a C programming class, and there's like a a, a shell scripting class, and a Linux admin class. Or sorry, the intro to the Linux class, you just have a shell account, and then after that, you move into being root and, and having your own VM or whatever. Uh, and so they have the server shared by all these students, and uh, I helped set it up. And, oh, cool. And, uh, then at one point they needed some help with it and the regular people that do it were all on vacation or something. And so it's like I went in and like the manager had to go and find it and then give me the password on a little slip of paper and it was hilarious. It's like, you mean you guys don't have it set up so you could just add my login to a group and I would just be able to sudo or something? It's like, how do you not have this set up this way? 
There's always yeah, room so for says, uh, Can we use Active Directory permissions that enable each tech to authenticate with their own Windows credentials on Linux with sudo writes? I want to avoid having to set up and delete each user on every server every time the staff change. Uh, plus, I want there to be accountability for who is doing what, where, and disable root, uh, root login. Right. Good, so good, good. I don't know how hard it is to connect Active Directory specifically. Uh, with the same before self, there you can definitely make it so users can authenticate. Yeah. From I, that, the way I I don't know about so let's see the last time I did this was Samba three. I don't know if it really changes much with Samba four, but the way I have done it in the past is um, you can configure the WinBind component of Samba to attach to an actual directory, and then actually uh, you can get UIDs and GIDs for all of the SSIDs and whatever the group equivalent is in Active Directory. Uh, so your domain administrators group in Active Directory will have an equivalent GID on your Linux rigs, and it will be the same across all of them if you set it up correctly. And uh, then you can say, all right, people in this group will get the ability to sudo. You can put them in the sudoers file. Yep. You get access to all of the groups in Active Directory are like local groups on the Linux box. It uses PAM and WinBind to accomplish all of this. You can disable root logins. You can log into the box with your Active Directory credentials. I will say, though, make sure you leave at least one local account on the rig that can do sudo access because if you lose WinBind for some reason, which had happened yeah, to me in the past. Daemon crashes. You're, right. or you're not you're logging in if that's your only the thing. IP on the machine or make yeah. some other configuration change. <laughs> right. You definitely want a local user or, account. Or or the time gets out of sync for some reason because then your Kerberos tickets start to fail and then WinBind can't authenticate that directory and your SOL. Uh, but this, it, I've used WinBind and uh, it's worked incredibly well. I, I've, I've used it in file servers where I've set all of the file permissions in on the file server based on usernames and groups from Active Directory. Uh, and I had people SSH in frequently. Uh, using uh, their credentials from Active Directory. So check out WinBind. That's at least one way to do it. At least that's how I used to do it. Don't know. This isn't even the feedback segment. We still got a question answered. How about that, Alan? All right. Next email uh, comes in from Brad saying, hey, episode 200, I want to say thanks for the BSD. So I slid this just in under the wire, episode 200 stories, that I met this guy named Alan Jude. Oh, oh my gosh. This is adorable. And I've been listening to TechSnap since episode one. He hosted on, he, he hosted on TechSnap. Even though he's a BSD guy, I would get, and he would get an occasional dig in on Linux while I was firmly confident in his OS is clear, while he was firmly confident with his OS's superiority. Of course, all of his digs were typically in Canadian style. My snarky, yet supremely polite. Next, he started co-hosting BSD Now, where he and Chris Moore put a friendlier face on the BSD world. So, along comes that sprawling, buggy, mission-creepy System D, and I started to have to look for an alternative. In case it went badly for Linux, I decided perhaps I should look at BSD, which seemed like a viable alternative. I now have replaced my aging file server with FreeNAS and last week, and made my workstation dual boot Debian and PCBSD. Though P- PCBSD is now my primary. So my hat is off to Alan. Thanks for opening my eyes to BSD. Cool. <laughs> Converting them, Alan. Converting them. All right. Uh, you, are up, you are up next, sir. TechSnap changed my life. How exciting. Yes, uh, from Christian. He says, I thought I'd also share how uh, TechSnap changed my life. Well, how about that? Uh, back in episode six, which was a long time, this is like four years ago now, uh, there was a question about backups and uh, – Chris mentioned uh, Backup PC, mm. and he said, boy, that saved my ass. Oh, good. Uh, even though it took me a couple of months before I finally got around to setting it up, I know uh, Tarsnap is sponsoring BSD Now for quite a while now, but I finally, uh, for my New Year's resolution, I got around to setting it up. 
I got my first bill uh, at the beginning of February for 25 cents <laughs> uh, for backing up all my important source code and email. Wow. Anyway, uh, so he says, uh, even though it took him a couple months to set up, uh, use it, uh, he uses it to back up his desktop PC, his laptop, his home server, his phone, his email, his thesis work uh, when he was still at university, and uh, a bunch of other stuff. Uh, about two years ago, I was working on a schedule uh, for my tutor job at the university. It was in uh, this big fancy Excel sheet. Everybody's seen one of those. Mm. Uh, that took him weeks to create. Suddenly, uh, the thing didn't open anymore. How often does that happen with Excel? Oh, man. You just get it a little bit too complicated and it's a it time breaks. bomb. Boom. Uh, you know, luckily, he had backups and those saved him. Oh, good. Uh, and, and that's the, uh, the important thing, the difference between just having a copy of all your files that you are sync or something right. and having a backup. Especially iterated uh, versions. Exactly. If you have the iterated versions, then you can be like, oh, it turns out when we saved the, the yeah. Excel sheet yeah. at the end of the day yesterday, mm-hmm. It was corrupted. Yeah, so let's so go the back backup from last further. night yeah. is bad. We yeah. need to go back further. But if your latest, if the latest nightly backup is your only copy, then you can't go back any further, and you're screwed. Or you know, and that's why uh, you know, if we go back to like I think uh, episode thirty or something, we talked about backups specifically. You know, you have to look at that. How frequently do you need to back stuff up? Uh, certain things like maybe your work in progress, the cell docs. Maybe you want to back those up like every hour. Uh, so that if there is a problem like that, you've only lost an hour or two's work rather than the whole day, uh, you know, depending how it's set up. Uh, you have to look at how much data you're willing to lose and how long you're willing to be down to restore it and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, then uh, He includes some his, screenshots, Alan, of his, uh, yeah. of his backups here, which is looking good. He's getting some good backups going. Uh, he says, also, he's happy with LastPass, uh, thanks to Chris and his continued endorsement. Uh, and <laughs> yes, he has uh, some Here's his LastPass, 100% score. Look at that. Mm-hmm. 100% perfect password strength. That's respectable. Huh. I love the backup PC uh, screenshots, too. That's great. Uh, yeah, good. and that's, uh, that's what I love about my PCBSD setup on my laptop, is I take a snapshot of the whole file system every 10 minutes and then call those after, like, uh, six hours down into one hour ones and then more, you know, tighten them out over time. Uh, but being able to just go back 10 minutes when you screw something up is a big save. Yeah. All right. Uh, Cameron writes in with our next one. How has TechSnap affected me? Well, since I started watching TechSnap, I've become more aware of the actual security problems the internet encounters due to various reasons. A couple things I've done since I've moved into my new home. Uh, he says, I left a PFSense box in my parents' house when I left, blocking various things. Uh, I threw together a nice little PFSense box here, which has VLANs for guests and is only turned on when I have it on. The access point I have on by default is unnamed and requires the WPA2 key. Then it has Mac whitelisting enabled since I don't want unwanted devices connected. I recently upgraded my desktop from an i7-2400K to an X99 platform. I didn't want the desktop just sitting around, so I loaded up on 2 on it since that's the platform I'm used to. Sorry, Alan. It has four VMs loaded with an Asterix VoIP server then connected to my DigitalOcean droplet via OpenVPN. And a friend and I are doing a bit of an experiment. And we had a couple of IP phones sitting around. We have OpenFiler for the NAS, Ubuntu Dev VM with Snapshot set up in case I mess it up. Boom, I just reset. And all of this was inspired by watching TechSnap and the curiosity to see if I could do it. I'm convi- I, have, I have convinced my school's IT director to transition some of the back-end to Linux, which uh, is like the email server, and quite a large NAS, and also Moodle. I'm planning on going to college in the fall for my BMS in information technology. I have always had a niche 
for computers and networking, but you guys solidified my love for it. Been watching since episode one. And I think um, when he says, and I thank you for all of the Jupiter Broadcasting shows and every, all the hosts who made an awesome success. Cameron, great note, Cameron. Thank you. Alan, do you have our last one there? Yes, I have our last one here from uh, Boston. It says, uh, which tech snap episode helped me, you may ask. Well, each and every one of them. Uh, let's try to explain this. Uh, in various episodes, you talk about security breaches, zero-day vulnerabilities, exploits in the wild, hacks, cracks, encryption, protocols, patches, upgrades, wiretapping, uh, <laughs> bugs, authentication, cybercrime, scrambling, critical flaws, bash, security holes, exploits, rogue DNS servers, cross-site scripting, uh, penetration, certificates, Metasploit modules, trace routes, cryptographic hash algorithms, Holy. Uh, deprecation, com- uh, compatibility, uh, backdoors, brute force, ZFS servers, address protection, uh, attacks, uh, cipher keys, ZFS, ZFS snapshots, snapshots. <laughs> <laughs> uh, service attacks, yeah. machine learning, security researchers, compromise this. I would add one more, NTP amplification attacks. Where was that one? Come yes. on. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was a big one. Uh, and my favorite, uh, password stored in plain text. Yeah, oh yeah, good one. <laughs> uh, most flaws, in fact, every flaw, are made by humans. Mm. Uh, you may be the best IT guy, but you're still a human. Humans make mistakes. They get tired and they make mistakes. And they also forget things. That's true. And yeah, that's that's the kind of stuff that happens. Or, you know, if you've ever uh, worked on a, a big document, you know, writing, you know, your thesis or something for school or something, and you write it all and you're trying to proofread it, when you proofread it, you see what you think is there, right. not what's actually there. Right. And so it takes a, an outside person reading it to notice that you have some words there that aren't the words you're expecting them to be. Uh, and, you know, uh, I learned a, a trick when you're doing that. Uh, read it backwards. Start at the bottom and read the words individually backwards so they don't make any sense so that you can tell uh, you have greater chance of catching typos and, and, and words that aren't the right word mm-hmm. that way. Absolutely. Anyway. Uh, so every show gives me a little something, that little something that reminds me to keep uh, my IT land sanitized and reminds me uh, to insist <laughs> on good practices and stay alert. And the other thing is just the more things you've heard of, the more things you think about, right? You're right. in the middle of setting something up and you're like, don't I remember a story when somebody was doing this and they and they right. made this mistake and this helps bad you thing kind of happened? It helps you think through possible scenarios and stuff like that. Yeah. He says, I listened to Snap while driving to work. Oh, uh, when I come to work, I first check everything that you had talked about in your show and make sure it's all packed. Love it. Uh, do I or don't I have to worry about it? Uh, perhaps a forgotten server that just uh, works and everyone has forgotten about and needs to be updated. Or some testing or development server that was left after the uh, developing and testing was done and it hasn't been updated since. Uh, did some workers connect uh, a gauge device to the internet with no authentication, like the one at um, uh, Target or whatever? Mm. Uh, and, you know, did they forget to inform us about it or whatever? Uh, you can't put my finger on a specific solution that TechSnap has helped me with. Everything's helped. Alan's explanations of articles and feedback segments, uh, good ideas from the audience and questions, and uh, even the most basic questions uh, are good reminders and, and help fill out those kind of gaps in knowledge and so on. Uh, he says, I think that it also helped that I've seen roughly 150 of the 200 <laughs> TechSnap episodes. Hey-o. Right on. You know, it's a lot more of them than I've seen. Yeah, I uh, I think too. And of course, this isn't even the feedback segment. We're going to go do more emails, more questions. Uh, but there is been, there has been a really great exchange between us and the audience over the 200 episodes yep. too, which has been really cool. 
Uh, and, and so I'm glad the audience gets some value from that as like, like we do as well. Thank you, everybody, who sent yes, those it in. It's nice to, to hear everybody's uh, stories. Yeah, it's fun. Uh, and, uh, of course, it makes us feel wonderful. So why don't we talk about something else that's wonderful, and that's our third sponsor this week, Ting. Go over to techsnap.ting.com right now, won't you? That helps support the show just visiting, and I want you to just take a tour around the Ting website because Ting has something really compelling they want to offer. Mobile that's not going to screw you over. It's no BS. It's just Ting takes your minutes, your messages, your megabytes, and it's $6 for the line, and then it's just, just that's all you pay. It's your minutes, your message, your megabytes. They just add up your usage, and that's what you pay. There's no contract. There's no early termination fee. You go to techsnap.ting.com right now. Try out their savings calculator. You're going to get a $25 discount off your first device because you went to techsnap.ting.com. If you have a Ting compatible device, and they have a BYOD page where you can check out if it's already compatible. If you have one that's already compatible, they'll give you a $25 credit. Well, I had a compatible, and I brought over an Evo. And so that gave me a month. That paid for my first month. Now I've got like three phones on there. It's $6 for each line, and then just the usage on top of that. So it's not really a big deal. It's like 37 bucks this month, I think. It's, really, it's not even 40 bucks. TechSnap.Ting.com. No hold customer service. You can call them 1-855-TING-FTW, and a real human being answers the phone. I love that, too, because I actually find everything I've ever needed from purchasing a phone, activating a phone, transferring phones to somebody else, deactivating phones, uh, Moving a Firefox OS phone onto the Ting network, moving an Ubuntu Touch phone on like all of it, I was able to manage through help.ting.com and the Ting forms and the Ting dashboard, which is amazing. But mm-hmm. if you got stuck, they do have the no-hold customer service. And I love that for like friends and family that I move over to Ting because then I just tell them you call them. If you have a problem, you don't got to call Chris. You just call them. Because sometimes if you call Chris, you got you to wait on hold, but not when you call Ting. Uh, but the other thing that's great about Ting is they're just a straightforward company. They just tell you exactly what they're thinking, where they stand on issues. Uh, they have a great post up right now. Uh, yesterday they posted it, so Wednesday uh, of February, on Title II and what they think about it and what it means for the Internet. And I think that probably is important to a lot of you out there. And it's nice to know really clearly where your cell phone company stands. And I would, uh, I would suggest you read this and then hold that in contrast to the actions that AT&T and Verizon are taking. And tell me which one you're more comfortable with your dollar going towards. Also, back on the Ting store, just back recently, uh, the uh, Tri-Band MiFi 5580 LTE. I love this device because it's super small, portable, great battery life, has the LED screen that gives you your signal stats, all of that. $6 a month for this. It's a $6 hotspot. When you go to techsnap.ting.com, it's going to be $96 just to buy it outright. You own it, no contract. If you don't need it for a little while, you deactivate it. When you do use it, it's just you pay for your data. It's a 4G LTE tri-band hotspot, $6 a month from Ting with no contract. That's a great deal. They also have the iPhone 5S $270. The iPhone 5S for $270 is a fantastic deal. And last but not least, they have a phone that I am seriously been eyeing, the new Sharp Aquios Crystal that's supposed to have an incredible, incredible screen, $278. All of these phones, all of these phones are off contract. All of these phones, you own them outright. They're your phone. They're not trying to scam you. You're only going to pay for your usage. If you bring your own phone, that's even better. And Ting's going to soon have GSM coverage as well, so there's going to be a whole new category of phones you can bring. So go to techsnap.ting.com. Try out that savings calculator. I'm serious. I've saved over $2,200 uh, over two years. But that's that's an incredible savings over two years because I, I, I literally went from somewhere I, th- I don't even remember. I think it was about 125 but after taxes, it must have been about $140 a month for my bill. I've ser- I've, I basically have cut my bill by 100 bucks minimum. But I think, you know, I mean, after taxes and whatnot, it might have been more than that. I, it's just it's an incredible amount of savings. Essentially, I could buy a new laptop every two years because I switched to Ting. And if you're a small business – Verified by a third party, if you have more than 10 devices on Ting, it's like a 100% guarantee you're going to save money. 
It's, it's, it's an amazing, amazing way to do cellular. Check them out. TechSnap.ting.com. And a big thank you to Ting for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Alan, I'm really impressed. Uh, brand new, breaking ground in the podcast scene, BSD Now has introduced the two-part podcast. It's a two-parter, episode 75 from the foundation of BSD Now. Yeah, that one's about uh, we interview uh, the project uh, development director uh, for... Uh, the FreeBSD Foundation, and next week's episode, we will interview uh, somebody from the OpenBSD Foundation. That's awesome. So uh, uh, this and, is... Uh, and we have lots of other good stuff coming up as well. Episode, wow, 75, Alan. Jeez Louise, dude. That's They're crazy. They caught up to us over there. Uh, so this is the halfway point in your TechSnap show. If you want to go grab something, go get the HD version of BSD Now, episode 75, from the Foundation, part one. But with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website, or even better, starting a thread in our subreddit over at links. Nope, that doesn't work anymore. Techsnap.reddit.com. And uh, we have one from the subreddit this week, which is cool. There were some other threads over there too, but they got some great answers. So let's start with our first email. Uh, Simon writes in with maybe a common question or perhaps a question uh, you at home have had. I like to think that everybody's sitting at home around the fire watching TechSnap. Simon writes, uh, would you mind explaining to me the difference between a cheap gigabit Ethernet switch and a high-end one? I've always purchased the cheapest network switches available thinking they all just kind of do the same uh, standard packet forwarding at a minimum max of one gigabit. But looking at my local computer shop, there are over 15 different types of five-port gigabit switches. Fifteen, Alan. The expensive ones bring almost ten times the price of the cheapest. Are there any differences, or would you just be paying for the brand name? Just a note, I'm not talking about smart switches that have web UIs. Just dumb ones. Just dumb switches. Thanks. Love the show. Right. So, yeah, you have your regular unmanaged switch, which does, doesn't, it, like, there's no interface to it. You can't tell it to do anything. You plug cables into it, and packets move. Then you have smart switches, which are basically that with a web interface that maybe gives you some functionality. Like maybe it has support for uh, link aggregation to bond ports together mm. or uh, support for VLANs and a few features. Then you have managed switches. Uh, there's layer two and layer three managed switches. Layer two means, uh, you know, it just deals with Ethernet stuff and allows you to do a bunch of features. And then lastly, uh, the uh, layer three ones let you actually make decisions based on like IP addresses. Uh, which normally what about, a switch doesn't actually look at normally. What about like you know, the uh, what about like maybe higher end processor in the switch? Maybe like the switching yeah, so fabric. There are itself? some differences, uh, and whether maybe some of the cheap ones maybe would be quite uh, pushed very hard to be able to actually forward a gigabit. Now, if you're just looking at the speed going from one port to another port, most of them will manage the gigabit. They promise. Some of them, though, uh, the switching fabric, the processor might not be able to keep up if you were saturating all of the ports. Yeah. Now, in a five-port one, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the cheaper one is probably fine. It probably is. Uh, I, I haven't bought a Switch that small in a long time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I did buy a, a cheap eight-port one because my last, my one eight-port one that was being used for just some odd NEN stuff uh, got zapped by the lightning, uh, if you remember that, yes. a couple, like a year and some ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but since then, honestly, I've been buying like 24-port gigabit switches for the $200, $250 range, yeah. uh, which is pretty cheap for, that's $10 a port for 24-port gigabit uh, with 
they're smart ones. So you get the management, you get VLANs, lags, and uh, that kind of interesting stuff that makes it possible to do uh, fun stuff. Like I have VLANs and stuff set up uh, here so that computers upstairs in my house can't talk to the computers downstairs in my office except for, uh, you know, my one computer that's allowed to. And then separately, there's also a, a DMZ VLAN for all the servers on my uh, fancy internet connection so that, uh, you know, if I give someone access to a server there, they can't uh, drill in and get access to files from my office or my house. How many devices does Alan have connected? That's, <laughs> that's a lot. That's the, chat room, um, that's the chat room asking. Yeah. There are one, two, three. There's four computers in this room. <laughs> and then there's a whole rack in the basement. And then there's like four more computers in the basement. There's two in the living room. One of them doesn't actually need to be there anymore, but it's still there. Yeah, there's a lot of computers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I can see how five ports I have 10 gigabit Ethernet jacks in every room in the house. And some of the rooms have two. Like the living room and this computer room have two. So uh, one of those, uh, I actually do still have a five-port gigabit switch that I bought like a bazillion years ago. Uh, and it sits in this room on the second jack and allows, so my computer gets one port to itself. And then the second port goes into a little five-port switch that allows me to connect all the other devices like the NUC and uh, my laptop and so on. Do you even have to run the heat down there, Alan? Um, it's pretty yeah. cold out there, so I bet you might. Uh, all right, John's got an epic question. Let's see if we can help John out here. He says uh, he's adopted. He's got an adopted drive. He wants an adopted drive solution. I love that. He says I worked yeah. part time in a computer repair shop, and over the course of my occupation there, I have collected about two dozen hard drives that just kind of are on their last legs, perhaps. Before they go to the landfill, they sit on my desk. They range between, you know, different size drives, 2.5 inch, 3.5 inch, uh, SATA 123, 5400 RPM, 7200 RPM, 120 gig to 500 gig, etc., etc. He thinks he's got somewhere around 6 terabytes. He would need to verify if some of the drives have died just by sitting on his desk for a few months, and he wants to know a, st- a way to streamline and inspect them. He's run smart tests, but they take forever. Often there's bad sectors that need to be relocated. I'm wondering if there's a way to streamline the process and if there's an unacceptable level of degradation before I use any of these drives. The next step is finding a suitable software and configuration. He wants to know how he can use some of these older drives safely. He's looked at some software RAID solutions, although he's not very familiar with them, like ZFS, ButterFS, MDADM, and LVM. Uh, he's looked at some paid solutions too, like uh, Drobo, Tr- uh, TrueNAS, ReadyNAS, Synology, with you know sliding the drives in there. He wants to know what configuration with a bunch of drives like this and what RAID level would be safest. And then he's going to also ask us about hardware. He wants to know if it's okay to repurpose an H881 Pro BTC motherboard, which has six PCIe slots, two gigabytes of RAM, and a Haswell Pentium CPU. Uh, and uh, he, had, he has an R9-2x80 in there for mining. Uh, it's going to run, uh, it looks like Linux, I think. Not a pre-made NAS. He said, or should, I, or should I buy an enclosure? Is this endeavor possible? Would this be worth the cost, time, and effort? Is this a horrible idea, and should I send the drives to their final destination, i.e. the landfill? Uh, if I should proceed, is there any tips for such do's and don'ts that can be easily overlooked? I know this is a long-winded post. I'm thinking about giving this, but I'm worried it's going to give me a migraine. Thanks for your reading, John. Yeah. Um, I definitely do not like using old, questionable hard drives to store <laughs> anything. Yeah. Um, what so if yes, you just rated my, the hell out of it? My, my, my top recommendation was just toss them. <laughs> but uh, if you did want to use them, uh, obviously ZFS is the best because it's going to have the biggest chance of like silent corruption and other problems. Uh, and then for your configuration, when you have a lot of different drive sizes, uh, your best bet is to group them into similar sizes. 
So if you have mm. you know three hundred and twenty mm-hmm. gig drives, you make a mirror out of that set, and then another mirror out of your set of like three hundred and twenty gig drives, another set out of your five hundred, whatever. Right. Um, so you can do that and, and just pair them off into mirrors, and that will give you the best chance of getting the most amount of storage out of them. I like that. Without survive, uh, sacrificing too much reliability. So you could do something like RAID Z3 so that you can sustain the failure of any three drives. But when you do something like that, then you're looking at you only get the size of the smallest drive times Ooh. three less than how many drives you have. So gotcha. if you have eight hard drives and you make a RAID Z3, the smallest drive is 120 gigs, then you get 120 times five. That's your total space. Um, if you do the mirrors, you might uh, actually come up with more data depending how different your drive sizes are. Okay. The biggest advantage with mirrors is it's easier to add and remove stuff uh, than with RAID Z because you can add and remove one and two drives at a time rather than uh, having to do bigger sets. You know, Alan, he says he's looking we at ha- Windows. The interview hasn't come out yet, but we just interviewed two ZFS developers about the upcoming support for being able to remove devices from a RAID Z array. Oh, good, good, or, good, good Sorry, good. from a ZFS yeah, array. You yeah. can't do RAID Z yet. You can only do uh, mirror sets or, or individual stripe drives with no redundancy, but you shouldn't ever do that. Um, okay. So re- recommend against doing it. If you do, I would say uh, use mirror sets uh, and group the drives based on their sizes. Uh, and if you suspect a drive is bad, more drives in that mirror set, right? So if you have 420 gig drives, you could do two sets of two. Uh, And if you have a suspicion that one or two of them are really bad, you might do it as a one big stack of all four of them. Uh, The advantage to the deeper stack, you don't get extra storage space, but you do get more read speed. So if you need more speed, that's another advantage. Um, Then about his questions about actually getting it all into the rig. Uh, You know, he says... Uh, using RAID cards or RAID card in JVOD mode or whatever, your best bet is just straight SATA ports if you can and uh, an HPA if you need to fit more SATA ports into that motherboard. Uh, external docking stuff, I recommend against that. Those don't tend to work mm-hmm. so good. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there there are things you can get uh, to use your uh, 5.25-inch bays to fit three-and-a-half or two-and-a-half-inch drives in them to fit more mm-hmm. uh, into the case if you need room for more drives, but... Honestly, in the end, if they're old, crappy drives, uh, they're just not worth it. I noticed uh, he he says he's looking at Windows storage spaces, Flex Rate, Snap Rate, Unraid, uh, Turbo NAS, Ready NAS, Synology, Drobo. Never mentioned Free NAS, and Free NAS not only gives you all the ZFS well, capabilities. He kind of says ZFS at the beginning, but Free NAS has a nice. I mean, if you're not very comfortable with FreeBSD and ZFS, one of the things is when you log into your Free NAS console, there's a red green and a yellow light system. And if you have a smart error or a sector error on the drive, it'll flip that red and you just click that and it tells you right there in the display, hey, smart error on this drive. And that's really nice if you're working with some older equipment. So you might seriously consider free NAS too. Yeah. Uh, and I definitely say go with sets of mirrors and lots and lots of redundancy. Uh, but you're basically asking for trouble using old mismatched dead drives. You're not going to get very good performance out of them. Okay. Uh, yeah. Probably be better off with... Uh, you know, buying three or four brand big, new drives. drives. Yeah. yeah. You know, three terabyte drives are like a hundred bucks now. Yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, if Alan. you need a lot of performance, more smaller drives is better. Uh, you know, the IX has that article about the number of spindles. But at home, 
you know, a couple of three terabyte drives are going to give you enough performance to saturate your LAN anyway. So that's probably all you're going to need. Darwin writes in with a question about how risky ZFS is. Hey there, first came across your show about a year and a half ago, and then later checked out BSD Now, and then last in Coda Radio, and I've been watching everything since. I was led in by the interest to learn more about ZFS, and I was getting sick of being burned by data loss every few years, even in the cloud. It wasn't a very reliable solution. So here's my question. Am I at a greater risk of corrupting the file system if I use ZFS on a system without ECC memory versus using Extended 4, HFS Plus with journaling, NTFS, as I understood it? ZFS delivers on its promises by assuming the RAM has ECC enabled in order to make the original checksum. So when ECC RAM isn't used, i.e. like in my MacBook Pro, repairing from parity in the right circumstances would further worsen any corruption on files without being aware of it. This seemed clear to me until you mentioned a couple instances that yours, you use ZFS on your laptop and you don't need ECC memory. So, so uh, general... If you want to pause there for okay, a second. Sure. Uh, uh, yeah, it's a very common misconception that ZFS relies on right, ECC. Right. It's Basically, the way the checksumming works is the data, the program writes the data and it goes into RAM, and then ZFS looks at what's in RAM and uses that to calculate the checksum. So if there is an ECC error, that data will be corrupted. The same thing would happen if you were using any other file system. Uh, the big difference is any other file system wouldn't know that it was corrupted. Uh, now, ZFS can't always determine if, if the checksums were on the first time. Now, the second time, if ZFS reads it and there's memory error or whatever, it will find the problem and it will tell you. Every other file system would return garbage data to your program or crash, and and then you wouldn't know what was going on. Uh, so, uh, specifically, ZFS without ECC is still better than using anything other than ZFS. <laughs> ECC is better, right. you know, uh, you know, if you're if you're building a server and, and you know the main thing about ECC is you put it in a machine when you want uptime because you don't want yeah. a random memory error to cause the OS to crash or right. something, right? right yep, yep. Or to corrupt data or whatever. Or if you're computing so, your really important data and you don't want any, yeah. or just yeah, uh, it's all it's kind of surprising. ECC isn't just standard for everything now. Yeah, but um, so ECC is better. You should always have ECC if you can. But the risk of have not having ECC is less than the risk of using something other than ZFS because it will munch your data more likely than an ECC error will mess it up. Okay. Uh, so now you read the next part there. Uh, well, he just kind of, I mean, you kind of already covered it. He just said uh, the right. general... so he, ma- he made a list about yeah. the general riskiness, and he says, so the most risky is ZFS without ECC, then, yeah. then something else, then ZFS with ECC being the least risky. Yes. And that's wrong. I would put anything else, right. ZFS without ECC, yeah. and then you're more safe with ZFS with ECC. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of contentions on this issue. People argue in every direction. Um, but uh, if you see the ZFS best practices article uh, that's coming out in the FreeBSD journal uh, soon, whenever the January-February issue for 2015 comes out, uh, I got a nice quote in there from Matt Ahrens on his position on it. And I tend to take uh, his position most seriously since you know he was the co-inventor of ZFS oh, and well. is the guy that's been still working on it. Some the credibility time. there. Some credibility. Yeah. Some. ISIS BS, uh, looking know. forward to seeing us at uh, BSD CAN this year. Yes. Uh, so in general, yes, you should have ECC, but you know, uh, don't let that miss, make you miss out on using ZFS on your laptop. Right. Don't let that Because you know, if, it, if an ECC memory error occurs, it's going to have just as much of a problem uh, on your NTFS oh, yeah, for sure, right? yeah. than it is on your ZFS. And yeah, no yeah. question there. 
All right. This if is... you have an ECC error, data might get lost. There's nothing you can do about it either way. ZFS just has a greater chance of actually telling you which file and how it's got messed up. And at least has a chance to save you. This is a uh, storage spectacular feedback segment. Uh, Mini Market writes in and says, Can you explain to me like I'm five... Uh, storage blocks extends pages. When I uh, when reading, does file system block size matter anymore? I realized I know close to nothing about storage. I trust Alan to explain this a little better than anyone else can. Can we request him to spend a little time teaching us on the show? So blocks, extents, pages, anything you want to jump in on there, Alan? Anything you feel like explaining to yeah, um, mini the market? The one about uh, block size is basically it's the smallest unit of what you can do, uh, right? Uh, so, in particular, if you have a block size of, say, um, ah, for example, uh, newer drives have 4K sector size. Uh, so, meaning that's basically the smallest unit that the drive can work on. If you don't have uh, your system set properly uh, and it uses the old-fashioned 512-byte yeah. sectors, that means that when you write one sector uh, or the one 512-byte block to the 4,000 by, uh, sector, the way the drive has to actually do that is read the whole 4,096 uh, bytes, edit the 512 that you change, mm. and then write it all down again. And that's slower than if it could just overwrite the whole 4K without knowing uh, what was there before. Uh, and so that's why uh, block sizes can matter. Yeah. Uh, and this question comes up with ZFS a lot as well, uh, in particular with databases. For example, if you're using uh, MySQL with InnoDB or uh, MarioDB with inodb, uh, its native block size is 16K. So if you set ZFS to match, then you won't have any of that rewriting stuff happening. Uh, but if you're using the older uh, MayaZam, I think it's 8K. And, you know, there's different things for different uh, stuff. And, you know, different file systems will have different chunk mm. sizes. And, mm. and you have the same thing with uh, virtual machines. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if if how it's emulating the hard drive affects how the file gets written and then where you store it has affects stuff and it gets all over the place. Um, for a bit more information on the tuning of it all and stuff, mm-hmm. uh, back a while ago we interviewed Josh Petzl uh, from the FreeNAS project about the settings, uh, specifically when using like iSCSI, the settings for ZFS, your iSCSI server, your iSCSI client, your network, and whether using jumbo frames helps and all that stuff and and, uh but to answer your specific question i'd have to uh make a list of the terms and give them better definitions and i'm just not ready to do that right this minute no but Uh, i would that is in the subreddit and i would invite anybody in the audience that wants to jump in there and do that we can cover in a future episode mm -hmm. too because sometimes Uh, if you get something started like that, so uh i guess he mentioned blocks so we kind of covered that extents are usually basically when you just allocate a giant file uh and then expose that as an iSCSI device uh, so when you're doing virtual machines, uh, if you're if you have just you know the 20 gig uh, VMDK file on your hard drive, that's kind of a like an extent. Uh, but more common cases when you're doing iSCSI is iSCSI is over the network pretending to be a hard drive, mm-hmm. but it's actually backed by this extent, which is basically just a file sitting on the hard drive on a server. And uh, you know those have a, a native block size that they advertise and. Uh, making that sync up with whatever you're using it for uh, gives you better performance. And then pages are how the operating system deals with memory, right? Rather than allocating individual bytes 
uh, for certain things. It does it in pages of a round size so that you don't end up with uh, fragmentation to the point where, you know, the last thing you needed was like 3,250 bytes. And the next thing is this. And when you free that, now you have this space that's too small to fit anything. Right? And so by making everything around 4K, you always have these, you know, nice even blocks and so on. But yeah, uh, mm-hmm. I can dig into that more maybe for next week. Maybe so. Uh, all right. So uh, there, we want your emails. There you go. That's the feedback segment. And we need more questions because 201 is just around the corner. So go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com, click the contact link, choose TechSnap from the dropdown, and send us in your feedback. Or you can go to techsnap.reddit.com and start a post over there. And if you'd like to jump in on the uh, Explain It Like I'm 5 thread, I'll have that linked in the feedback segment of the TechSnap program. But Alan... With the emails all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap Roundup! Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to follow up on your own, read a little bit after the show. And a lot of these links came from our powerful subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. And our first story in the Roundup... Don't look, don't blink, because if you do, you might miss it. But now we're not just blaming North Korea for the Sony hacks. We're also blaming Russia. Now, I I know we were all expecting China to get the blame this time around. I know, I know, but Russia's our new bad guy. So uh, Forbes is running a piece suggesting that while the Guardians of Peace were hacking Sony, alongside the Guardians of Peace was an elite force of Russian hackers who were co-hacking Sony and are now selling off the same data. Or the Guardians of Peace shared the data with their friends who then turned around and tried to sell it. Yeah, or they just posted it online and then the Russian hackers downloaded it and now they're they're like, oh, most people haven't found this yet, so why don't we try to make some money on it? Yeah, and just, whoa, I was like, wow, okay, what? I thought we were all on board with uh, pretending like it was North Korea. Like, that wasn't phony enough. We have to throw more phony stuff in? (laughs) It's just, it's like a pile. Just heap it all on, everybody. Uh, So, yeah, there you go. That's in the roundup if you want to read more about it. I, I I just I I don't even know what to think about it. I th- I saw I'm glad you grabbed this one. I saw this headline and it did it did catch my attention, but I never read it. Uh, here's why your bank account is less secure than your Gmail. Seems like a good one. Yeah, and they talk about you know how um, drop or sorry uh, Gmail has two factor authentication and automatic stuff like oh look you just tried to log in from China that probably wasn't legitimate or you just logged in from two different geographic places. That probably means we should uh, ask you, are you, is one of these not you? Right. Is this legit? Right. Like when I try to access my Gmail from Japan, it's always like, hey, um, what's up with that? I'm like, no, I'm I'm over here on vacation or at a conference. I'm like, oh, okay. We'll allow it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kind of thing. And he says, banks, however, are behind. Uh, Some financial giants have seen the light and are offering customers the option to secure their logins with two-factor authentication. Uh, or offer SMS notification every time you do log in so that you know as soon as someone other than you is accessing the bank or whatever. And that's a baseline for some good security. But a lot of other banks uh, fail to go much further than that. Um, yeah. You know, many of these uh, do provide additional security through the banking process, but none of them offer a level of login security uh, that you can get compared to what you can get from Google right. for various things. Right. It's not even, you can't even compare it to the security. That's pretty sad when you, when you think about it in that context. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Uh, That's and, and they talk about a couple other things. And 
admittedly, uh, in most cases, the banks would rather do their machine learning pattern analysis stuff and just uh, yeah. basically let the anti-money laundering protections uh, catch the large transfers from hacked accounts and so on. Yeah. And uh, rather than make it more difficult for people to access their banking, right? Because at some oh, point, yeah. if if you add too many security features to your banking, some of your customers are going to leave for a less secure bank just because it's easier. It's easier. Um, I although I do, I definitely think there are some uh, segment of the customers that would be oh, yeah. very happy to oh, have yeah. a more secure bank than everyone. Else. Our audience, <laughs> uh, but in the end, if the bank is indemnifying me against any losses, if it's right. because they got hacked, yeah, not a lot maybe, of incentive for you. Although it comes down to how much inconvenience is it going to be when this happens. That's what it is for me. It's too much. It's too right. much. And it's like, you know, how, how big of a problem is it going to be if it takes them like two months to give me my money back yeah. and the bills pile up? And yeah. Then, and, and I got to go down there to physically get a card reissued to me yeah. and reset my pin. It's a pain in the ass. You know what else? I have a statement from a bunch of banks here and uh, talking about why not all the banks do it. And it's a good article. Yeah, they actually reached out to a little journalism and got in, got got statements from the banks. How about that? Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. So last week, I don't think we mentioned it on the TechSnap program, but Microsoft rolled out Outlook. It's uh, they've actually they purchased another software and they've relabeled it and tweaked it a little bit and made it Outlook. What's interesting about this though is it's not very Microsoft of them. It turns out if you have users in your enterprise that are using Outlook on their mobile device, there may be some security policies that it's sort of, in a sense, rolling back. Uh, here's here's a few things. Uh, first of all, built into the app is just n- native file sharing. There's no controls, no restrictions. The app has built-in connectors to OneDrive, Dropbox, and Google Drive, so users can share attachments directly to those services without ever leaving the app, without uh, allowing you to have any sort of administrative oversight on where that data can be saved to. But here's the other one that would really annoy me from like a troubleshooting standpoint. Um, so they uh, to back it up, uh, each ActiveSync client normally has a unique ID for data synchronization. ActiveSync is the sync protocol used between a mobile device and an exchange server. That allows administrators to distinguish users and devices because each one has its own unique ID. Very good for troubleshooting, locking things down. However, Microsoft's Outlook iOS app doesn't work this way. The app shares the same ID across all devices of the user. So it seems like it's all just one device. That means if a user installs the Outlook app on his iPhone and then his iPad, it's seen as one device. There's no way to distinguish if it's an iPad or the iPhone that's like, say, having a problem for troubleshooting, uh, which is a major pain in the butt when somebody's on the road and they're like maybe at a hotel and you're trying to get their connection to work. Uh, and now the worst part, Microsoft will get to store and use your e- and have your email credentials in the cloud. So it stores your, your email credentials to like your enterprise Outlook account on their server. That's going to be a big no-no for some folks. What do you think, Alan? Yeah. um, You know, just... The problem with a lot of these mobile things is they just expose ways that kind of go around with most of the security things. Like, right? Remember we saw the the PayPal app. When you used it, it just went around two-factor authentication. And we just see more and more of these kind of... uh, Basically, a backdoor into the system for use by the mobile app. And that's just not the way it should be done. Hey, Alan, uh, Flash is having a good week, right? Nothing going on with Flash, right? Nothing to report about. Well, uh, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, this, I think, is the Flash update that we've always been waiting for. Oh. And, and the last two patches were just emergency patches, right? Yes. But l- both of the last two patches only fixed the two vulnerabilities, uh, one each that they were specifically, you know, an emergency fix for. Uh, this fix, uh, Flash 16.00.305, mm actually fixes 18 different CVE numbers. 
2015 03.13 through 2015 03.30 uh, or 03.30. Holy cow. Um, so it definitely seems like they were given just a block of CVE numbers to use. Yeah, so well, I wonder how big of a block and when yeah. they need a second one. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but of the 18 vulnerabilities, uh, 15 of them could, could result in uh, code execution. Jeez. Mm, uh, there's a bunch of like use after free. Uh, they have a bunch of different reporters. Uh, Microsoft found some of these. Trend Micro found some of these. Uh, you know, the caffeine researcher and lots of different people contributed. Uh, but this one basically seems to be the big roll-up patch that fixes everything that's known to be a problem right now. Well, that seems like a pretty big update then. 17, you say? Uh, 18 different vulnerabilities. 18. Oh, uh, oh. 03.13 through 03.30 inclusive. Yeah. And uh, they have a detail of what, what ones were which type of vulnerabilities and so on. There was like use after freeze and uh, even like a, a type confusion and a whole bunch of different things. Well, I guess then our next story in the roundup isn't too surprising in light of that story. Flash Zero Days dominate the exploit landscape. Dominate. Uh, in particular, a new exploit kit has emerged called Hanwan. Uh, and it's uh, taking advantage of some of these newer Flash exploits. Gosh, Flash needs to go away so hard. Uh, so there's... Uh, it's. I know. Part of it is flash. I know. I know. But look, this is just a, this is just a disaster at this point. Yeah. Uh, basically, you know, if we had, uh, un, well, basically any monoculture was bad, right? If we had yes, some right. second player right. that could play, you know, an RTMP stream. Yeah. Uh, well said. But be embedded in the browser. It's a monoculture problem. That's really the core issue, isn't it? Is they got a monopoly on this? I mean, they they locked it down with a proprietary standard. This is the risk. Uh, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. I, mean, I, I guess the only competitor I would have thought for this would have been maybe Java. <laughs> you know, maybe Java be in that position. Uh, okay, all right. The next story in the roundup, Moxie Marlin Spike. How about that? Something from his blog over at Moxie Marlin Spike, a crypto challenge for the Telegram developers. hey oh, love it. Let's do it, guys. Let's make this S secure. You have any comments on this one, Alan? Oh, hold on. Hold on. I, I uh, accidentally uh, muted you. Sorry. Oh. Well, that would explain why I've been talking and talking and you've just been ignoring Oh, I think I bumped your uh, button. <clears throat> ah, okay. So, yeah. Uh, so, Telegram added this new crypto feature. And uh, rather than uh, when people started asking questions about, well, how is it actually secured? They were like, well, we hired a mathematician and it's very secure. PhDs, PhDs, PhDs. Yes. Uh, and, and you should just take our word for it. And people were like, yeah, that's not how it works. So, Telegram came up with a crypto challenge. Um and the, the crypto challenge is basically like, all right, well, here's some details and here's a message. See if you can break it. And uh, so what Moxie Merlin's fight did to kind of prove that that doesn't actually prove anything is make his own crypto challenge where he purposely used all known bad ciphers and algorithms and, and so on. Mm. Right. So like mm. he used um, the dual EC DRBG. That's the uh, NSA backdoor random number generator. Uh, he used 896-bit uh, RSA, whereas you know we've all been forced to use at least 2048 now because uh, 896 isn't enough. Um, used uh, no padding uh, mm. or no random padding; it's all just padded with zeros. And he gave away the exponent there. Uh, and it uses MD2, you know, the weakest dated, mm-hmm. most dated uh, message digest. And uh, the encryption cipher used is just a plain XOR. So it's just the message XORed by the encryption key. Uh, and so under, you know, it's all known bad stuff, and it seems like you should be able to crack this immediately, but so far no one has. And 
That doesn't mean this stuff is secure. It just right. means that a crypto challenge isn't a way to prove that something is secure. Right. Uh, the best way, obviously, is the source code. <laughs> maybe doesn't want huh. to do that. Funny but how that need, works. Uh, you know, implementation details and so on in order to actually judge if something is secure. And if we've learned anything, we shouldn't just take a company's word for it that, oh, we're, we're using military grade encryption and whatever. Uh, and. Uh uh, uh, I guess and he it, does disclose uh, yeah. a conflict of interest in that his company is actually making an open crypto yeah. thing, which uh, should be interesting, huh? And they have some source code out. I think mm-hmm. so, isn't that a nice so, idea? Open standards so that everybody could use it. What a so. concept! Yeah, but he was uh, careful to actually clarify the conflict of interest. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, he's just applying research and logic and so. All right, Alan, uh, let's talk about this WordPress Zero Day. It's in a plugin, so don't worry. It's not yes. an all WordPress installation. Only if you use FancyBox, which I think is a type of Shoutbox. Yeah, yeah. So if you have FancyBox plugin installed in WordPress, you are vulnerable right now. Go get it patched. Go get it updated. That's really all uh, we probably have to say, right? Basically, the there was a bug where people were being – their WordPress blog was being taken over, and they didn't know why. <laughs> and then they found out that it was this plugin, Oy. and then eventually they came up with the patch. Oi. There you go. WordPress users, you have been warned. All right. Uh, of course, uh, this isn't going to surprise you too much, but it's something new going on in Internet Explorer right now. A Get ready for it. A cross-site scripting vulnerability in IE. We'll uh, the interesting thing is normally a cross-site scripting vulnerability is a problem with a website. Website specifically. Such that it allows uh, people to yeah. inject content or steal data from the this website. This is an IE, the browser. This is though. a universal yeah. cross-site scripting <laughs> vulnerability, meaning the problem is actually in the browser and you can do it to any website. All the way up to IE 11, even on 8, Windows 8.1. But also affecting older versions of IE on like uh, Windows 7 and yep. so on. Yep. Uh, in particular, uh, their proof of concept was if you go to our evil website here, uh, and then it'll pop up uh, dailymail.co.uk, which is a, a British tabloid, and uh, deface their page. So it replaces the uh, dailymail.co.uk website with a big hacked by this guy message. Uh, even though he didn't actually touch their web server or their website, he replaced the content in the browser, So, but the URL bar is reading the real address. Uh, so someone could use this vulnerability, for example, to inject <laughs> malware into yeah. a legitimate website. So yeah. you're going to the real CNN.com or whatever, and you're getting malware. Yep. Oh, man. What a train wreck. Boy, I'm just getting sick of IE and a flash. I'll tell you the two things. All right. Uh, here, <laughs> this, is like, this is like the Roundup Classic All-Stars. Like, episode, like everybody showed up. All of our regular characters that make it in a TechSnap program showed up to make like episode 200 Roundup, like the perfect TechSnap Roundup. Uh, Siemens ICS switches hit with a buffer overflow and authentication bugs. You know, those little valve switches and stuff. We've, Not we've big. talked about uh, – well, these are Ethernet switches. Oh, oh, I was thinking like SCADA switches. Oh, okay. Yeah, well, it, oh. they are switches used to manage SCADA oh, equipment. Oh, okay. <laughs> but in particular, so these are like uh, the things used uh, for building wireless LANs in, in rugged okay. stuff. And like these are the switches they install in the controller thing for like stoplights and various other things. Right? Yeah. You remember when we talked about stoplights being controlled over Wi-Fi and stuff? Yeah. These are the switches for that kind of stuff. <clears throat> so they're ruggedized switches for SCADA systems, but they're like an Ethernet switch. Uh, but there's a vulnerability in them where you could actually go in and change settings on them without even having to log in. <laughs> like normally you have to log in to get access to the admin stuff, but <laughs> if you just posted directly to a certain part or whatever, it would allow you to make changes without being logged in at all. Oh, what a clown show. 
and a bunch of other vulnerabilities. The integrated, we've, we've talked about these rugged com things before. I think the previous, the very first time we talked about it, it was their uh, serial server thing. Yep. Where the password was, oh, uh, the password for a hidden user most people didn't know was there was the MAC address put through a Perl script to turn it into a password. And the funny part was, as soon as you log in, the banner screen that comes up before it asks you for the username and password tells you the MAC address of the device. So then you could just run it through the Perl script and log into every one of them ever. Which was a backdoor they put in so they could manage them remotely uh, without the consideration that somebody else might figure out their Perl script. Yeah. And uh, lastly, Google has redesigned the SSL warning messages for future versions of Chrome. Yeah. Uh, now, we've talked about this research into this before, and you know, the research has shown that you have to explain to people what the actual risk is or like how many people in their area might be exposed to this risk and so on. Well, Google did their own research. They had a hypothesis that they thought would solve the problem. Turns out it doesn't. Oh. Uh, but they've learned a bunch of important lessons and applied them. Uh, mostly they found that you know, the explanation in these SSL error messages are too complex and people don't know what they mean. That doesn't surprise uh, and me. So, so that now it's been reduced to like, this website doesn't protect your privacy and this could expose your credit card number or whatever. And then they have a big blue button that's like, you know, take me out of here. And if you want to actually continue, you now have multiple clicks, like click advanced and then click I understand. And yeah. they talk about how like um, only one in 15 people are actually scared off by an SSL warning page. Part of the thing is to understand those numbers, you'd have to look at how many of those are a legitimately not the right certificate versus a self-signed certificate when that's what the user was expecting. I think that's very common for you internal know. stuff. Yeah. And, and it kind of, it seems like, you know, maybe we could adopt Dane or something so that when it's self-signed and we expect that to be the problem, don't give the scary warning uh, and let me actually visit the website over there. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really like the way any of the browsers handle that right now. So Apparently Firefox had the best results huh. uh, by basically, you know, you have to click... Add exception or whatever. They, well, you have to click a thing to make the button show up, then click yeah. it, and then check off add exception, then yeah. decide if you want it to be permanent, and then... Yeah. The really annoying one was I was dealing with some Dell Drax and they ship with the same SSL certificate by default on every one, which is horrible. Yeah. Uh, but it meant that if you tried to connect two different ones of those, the second time it would be like, I've seen this serial number somewhere else with a different thing. Mm-hmm. I'm not going... Or sorry, they use the same certificate with the same serial number but a different private key, I think. I think they auto-generate the private key when they boot up or something. So it's not as bad as the rugged com switches that shipped with the same private key on every switch to avoid generating because it would take a long time on the tiny ARM processor they used or MIPS or whatever tiny embedded processor they had. Uh, so it's not as bad as the rugged, but basically I had to like delete my certificate cache in Firefox to be able to connect to this stupid Dell because I had two of them or something. It was annoying. That's what you get for buying Dell. <laughs> I didn't. I was no, renting them. I'm kidding. <laughs> All right, Alan. Well, that brings us to the end of the roundup, which also brings us to the end of episode 200. Next week, you and I will be here, and it'll just be 201, and it's not going to be so special anymore. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> but you know what? We'll do it all over again until we get to 300. Uh, and we could use your help out there. You can go to the Jupiter Broadcasting contact page and send us an email. Just go click that contact link, Juice TechSnap from the dropdown, or email us directly, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com. And also help find some content, give some insights, maybe answer some community questions over on our subreddit, techsnap.reddit.com. And last but not least, the funnest way, to, if, you, if, you like, if you'd like to have Alan yell at you directly, uh, join us live over jblive.tv. We do this show live Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is? 
4 p.m. Eastern, 2100 GTC. Yeah, we also have it over at jblive.info if you just want to listen to the audio-only stream. Maybe you're a theater-of-the-mind type person or you're driving or they don't want you watching video at work. That's a possibility. Lots of reasons why you might want the audio-only stream, jblive.info, for that. All right, everyone. Well, thank you so much for tuning this week's episode of TechSnap, and thank you for tuning into all 200 episodes of TechSnap. We'll see you right back here next week. Bye.